This is episode 20 of the Just Get Started podcast, and my guest today is Chip Conley, founder of Joie de Vivre Hospitality and strategic advisor for Airbnb. Let's get it started. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey where we talk with people from all across the globe, from all walks of life, but all really motivated to do something a little bit different with their lives than previous, You know, whether that's starting a business or maybe it's getting in the best shape of their life or it could be just doing a new hobby. But they're kind of fed up with just status quo, and they want to live life on their own terms. So a lot of the different guests that we talk through are going to provide a lot of practical insight, maybe even some philosophical knowledge, but talking about their own journey and their own path to success, whatever that success is for them in particular. But the goal is that you guys can get out of this some different tips and tricks and some nuggets, um, maybe a couple each episode that you could take away and ultimately help you in your own life drive to that success, you know, kind of that whatever that North Star is for you and go out and try to achieve it. So I hope you guys get a lot of impact out of this episode and others. And without further ado, let's jump into our episode today. So let's welcome in my guest for today, Chip Conley. Chip can be found online at chipconley.com. Chip founded his own company at the age of 26 called Joie de Vivre Hospitality, where he basically took a rundown motel in San Francisco and turned that into the second largest boutique hotel brand in America. Um, So some great stuff that he did over those 24 years. But he ended up selling the company. And instead of riding into the sunset, he actually took an opportunity when he was approached by one of the co-founders of Airbnb, Brian Chesky, um, to head up their global hospitality and strategy, which he did for about five years. Now he's transitioned more into a strategic advisor role um, and focusing a lot on, you know, kind of this concept of being a modern elder and helping individuals that are not aging out of their current career, but maybe trying to switch careers or having kind of this midlife crisis. So he talks about that a lot in his new book, Wisdom at Work, uh, which we get into a little bit um, in the uh, episode as well. But I think you guys will really enjoy the conversation with Chip. He has so many experiences throughout his life, and it was really fun to get a chance to sit down with him for a period of time. So without further ado, let's jump into our episode today and my chat with Chip Conley. Let's get it started. Chip, it's a pleasure having you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Brian. I'm honored. Well, so I'm excited to talk to a variety of things today, um, and, and we'll certainly go on a, a, a bunch of tangents as we go in. But I want to start where I generally do, and because you've had such a successful career in a variety of different fronts, but I really want to start, and, and this could help out, um, I, I guess, for the audience to understand your background a little bit. I'm always intrigued by folks, their childhood, how they were brought up, what kind of environment they were in, and ultimately how that helped them. I'm really big on the uh, the nature versus nurture argument. So with that yeah. being said, can you, can you start us off and just maybe a little bit about your upbringing and, and, and what kind of what you went through in those uh, early to adolescent years? Sure. Um, I was the firstborn uh, to two parents who were both firstborn. So that means I'm a supercharged uh, type A, I guess. And um, but I was actually relatively creative and a bit of a loner and and an introvert as I was growing up. I had a lot of uh, sort of imaginary friends and 
uh, weirdly, I, you know, I was a pretty extreme extrovert as an adult, but up until about age 12, I, I was, I was a, I was a good athlete. So I connected with people that way, but I was sort of a little bit just, um, socially awkward, I would say. And, uh, and I preferred my time just by myself. And then about age 12 or 13, I shifted pretty dramatically into becoming an extrovert. And it's, it, it, it had a lot to do with the fact that uh, my parents said to me, listen, if you don't socialize more, we're going to send you to therapy. And I thought therapy was like a form of jail or something. So it was like, I'm being sent to prison because I'm an introvert. So I'll, I'll become an extrovert. And weirdly, I made a switch and, and became a, a pretty uh, extreme extrovert. And um, I don't think it was until my early 20s that I realized how much of a shift that had been. Um, but it was, uh, enough of a shift so that it allowed me to be very much, you know, sort of a socially active, big man on campus, athlete, student body president. But underneath all of that was this little piece of saying, you know, I'm sort of a creative introvert and I'm a little bit different than all the rest of you. And I think that is part has been sort of funneled into my entrepreneurial career. So that's, that's pretty interesting. What do you remember back um, to that time when you were 12 or 13? I guess one, it seems like the kick in the pants there, maybe from the parents was the reason you, you tried to do that. How difficult was that? Was there certain things that got you over the hump? I know most people have trouble if they're introverted to talk in front of three people. Um, how were you able to overcome that at, at that age? Do you remember that time? I do. Uh, I also asked my parents at, at that time, I said, listen, I want to be a writer when I grow up. And they said, writers are either poor or psychotic and most are both. Um, and I didn't really know what psychotic meant, just like I didn't know what therapy was. But, um, and I just sort of said, okay, I guess I won't do that. So I guess there was an element for me that said, okay, um, you know, I, I, sadly, on some level, I, I sort of said, okay, that part of me that seems most naturally gravitating to a creative aspiration of writing, you know, somewhat um, uh, in solitude, that was not something to be honored. And instead, I really sort of felt like, okay, I'm just going to push myself to become more smart at making friends and be a little bit more social. My dad was extremely social, very active. And so I started modeling myself after my dad a little bit more. And um, so, and, and truthfully, I was, a, if you're a guy and you're, a, you know, a teenager and you're a good athlete, you're going to, you're, it's a lot easier. So I was able to be a good enough athlete that allowed me to sort of connect with my teammates and build relationships there. And yeah, I think it was, you know, it was, uh, it, it, it wasn't as um, disjointed of a shift um, as it sounds, but I have, I remember in high school, at the end of high school, when I was student body president, I was like up there and gave a speech. One of my best friend's mothers came to me and she says, I remember you five years ago and you were very different than you are today. And for me, I just felt like, you know, I just had evolved some, I didn't feel like it was a totally different person. But um, she definitely showed she you know saw the difference. That's that's really fascinating, I guess, in terms of making that switch. I just uh, I know I had I was a little introverted as well, and I, I kind of I guess have a similar story, maybe not that ex extreme as yours, but um, so it's interesting to hear other people going through that. Um, let me ask you this: 
you talked about being a writer or wanting to be a writer, or maybe got a. I don't want to. I don't know if the word "discouraged" is the right is the right word to use, but um, I'll use it. But you ultimately, yeah. you ultimately pursued, or at least somewhere, because if I recall, you went to Stanford for journalism. Is that right? Or that was a, no, a passion I, of yours, or no? Or, it was a passion, but I didn't do a thing. I, I I had passed AP English in high school, so I took not one English class in in college. I was an economics major at Stanford. I focused, I was incredibly focused on business and on commercial real estate. And I got accepted straight into Stanford Business School from undergrad. So um, I graduated from Stanford Business School when I was 23. And so, no, I didn't have any, no writing, no journalism, no English, none of that. It wasn't until I was a, a pretty successful entrepreneur and was giving speeches about it that someone came up to me, a literary agent came up to me and said, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I did, you know, I had written a book in college with a, with a fraternity brother of mine about drinking games. And I wrote a book with Seth Godin, who was one of my classmates at Stanford Business School. It was both of our first, you know, both of our first sort of real books um, called Business Rules of Thumb while I was in Stanford Business School. But um, it was a bunch of years later, it was 15 years later that I was asked to write my first book. And so it was called The Rebel Rules, The uh, Daring to Be Yourself in Business. And Richard Branson wrote the foreword to the book, and it was a successful book. And I think at that point I realized, wow, I can be both that ex extroverted entrepreneur as well as that introverted writer. And I, I can be both of those things. I don't have to feel like it's an either or. How, how though – so going to Stanford, obviously, and, and doing some of the things you did there – can you share us, because this is really what I want to transition to, is can you share us how you got into starting your business? You started at a fairly early age. Um, can you talk about kind of one, that transition to starting the business, and then maybe those early years, um, just to kind of start off that yeah. conversation? Yeah. I. You know, it's funny. I. Um, there's three relationships you could have with your work. It's either a job, a career, or a calling. And um, in another book I wrote called Peak, How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow, I put it in the shape of a pyramid because job is at the base of the pyramid. Most people have that. A smaller number of people have a career. And then the lucky people have at the top of the pyramid at the peak is a calling. So I came out of Stanford Business School thinking I was going to go to work for this commercial real estate developer in San Francisco, and it would be a calling. But within a couple of years, it was clear it was just a job. And what happens if you don't if you don't find your calling in your work is you either look for it outside of your work or you look to find your calling in some other kind of um, of job. And I instead of going and looking for another job, I said, well, I I like commercial real estate, but I want to do something more creative. It was the mid 1980s, and boutique hotels in the United States were just getting off the ground. So I decided at age 26, with no hotel experience at all, that I would buy a motel in the center of San Francisco in a tough neighborhood that was a pay-by-the-hour motel, so you know what kind of clientele it had, and um, and turn it into a place called the Phoenix. And I called the company Joie de Vivre, partly because I like the idea of a company name and your mission statement being the same. Joie de Vivre is French for joy of life. And uh, our mission statement was to create uh, opportunities to celebrate the joy of life. Um, and so that led me to uh, 24 years of uh, creating the second largest boutique hotel company in the U.S. with 52 hotels. But those first few years, the getting started piece of that was really being willing to, to, to be very naive. 
and not try to show that I knew it all. I knew a lot about commercial real estate at age 26, but I knew nothing about hotels. So I surrounded myself with people who had great hotel backgrounds um, and gave myself three and a half years uh, to really understand the business before getting my second hotel and then my third hotel right after that. So I would just say um, when you're starting a business, for me, start cheap, small, and local. Um, and I did start cheap, small, and local. I, it didn't take a lot to, to buy this, uh, this broken down motel. And it was very localized, so I, I knew the knew the the customer base pretty well, and my mistakes were small. If you start too big, your mistakes are can be grand and they can sink you. So I spent enough time. I spent maybe I, it wasn't until my seventh year in business that we moved from our third hotel to our fourth. But between my seventh year in business to my twelfth year in business, we went from seven I'm sorry, from three hotels to fourteen hotels. So a lot of our growth happened after we developed the systems and the thinking and the intuition that allowed us to grow effectively. So buying that first hotel, because obviously that must have been pretty scary, um, that, the, the motel, why did you kind of pull the trigger on that one? Was there anything that you remember about that, again, maybe the, the, the area, like you thought maybe you saw a change in the development of that? I'm, I'm just kind of yeah. curious of why you, know, you took the gamble, which a lot of people may not have. Yeah, I took the gamble because of maybe three reasons. Number one is um, I – well, the area is no better today than it was 31 and a half years ago. So that wasn't really one of the reasons. The, the, the number one reason is I only had so much money, and so I could only afford about a million. I raised $1.1 million from family, friends, people like that. And I had to buy a, a motel or a hotel and renovate it and have the operating capital to get open for $1.1 million, which is nuts in San Francisco. So this was on a land lease, it had a 40-year land lease, so I didn't have to buy the land. And because it had been in bankruptcy, it was cheap. So that was the first thing. It was just, it, you know, it was priced right. Um, the second thing is I, the the market I wanted to go after was bands, you know, musicians and creative types. We called ourselves the, the Phoenix was the crossroads for the creative. Um, and the idea and the reason I like that market is I was 26 and I wanted like all my favorite bands to come stay with me, which is what happened. Red Hot Chili Peppers, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, David Bowie, all these people ended up staying in this funky little motel in the Tenderloin. Um, but so the second piece was like, OK, what's the hotel or motel that's going to work for me and this kind of audience? Um, but thirdly, the thing that was interesting is this is a property on a one acre of land with a swimming pool in the middle of it and a garden and a restaurant that fronts onto the courtyard. And I threw a lot of parties in high school and college, so I'm a pretty good party thrower. And I looked at this place and I said, man, what a great place to throw a party because all 44 rooms front onto this central courtyard. So it, it feels like a, a joie de vivre kind of place where people go and have a good time. So for those are my main reasons. You know, in those early years, and I'm always curious, and this could be, this could be now even, um, this doesn't have to be in that, that uh, moment, but, you know, obviously having mentors, and this, this will lead into some stuff we'll talk about in a little bit, but did you have anyone that helped you out that you remember that was a big in terms of, you know, how to get a business off the ground, how to, you know, how to, how to scale it, those type of things? Was there any mentors you had around you that were, were helpful? And, and what was kind of some of the advice they gave you? 
You know, I, I definitely got advice from my father who uh, is not, not – he was just becoming an entrepreneur himself about the same age. He was mostly just a commercial business person that worked in banks and for McDonnell Douglas. But you know what, what I did is I wrote Herb Kelleher. Herb Kelleher was the um, founding CEO and for 37 years the CEO of Southwest Airlines. And I really admired Southwest back then because they were this um, – can-do attitude kind of airline, you know, cheap but great culture and, um, and and very loyal customers. And so I started, you know, back then we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have email. So I sent him a, just an old school letter. He responded to it, and we started a mentoring relationship by mail over the course of a, a few years. Wow, that's really that's really cool. But that was before Southwest obviously got pretty uh, big there. I'm assuming. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was it was it was it was a smaller airline at that time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's pretty neat. And is there anything you remember? Any piece of early advice uh, Herb actually gave you that was that you kind of sticks with you today? Yeah, he said something to me that he had not at that point put in a book, or it wasn't famous. He said, "The customer comes second. And I said, what are you talking about? The customer comes second. That seems strange. We did have a phone call once to it. And he said, the customer comes second. The employee comes first. Um, and his premise there is if you're in the service business and you expect – you want to create um, uh, loyal long-term customers, you need to have loyal long-term employees who feel like they're well-respected and, well and appreciated. And rarely is it that you know one has to ha – you have to choose between one or the other. But when in doubt, choose the employee is their is point of view. And um, I've had that same perspective. I think it's actually worked quite well. It means you know very low uh, employee turnover. It means like incredible awards that we've won for creating a great culture. Um, and if you're in the service business and you you create a toxic environment, at some point that catches up with you because your customers start to feel it. Yeah, that's really good insight. Actually, that's a good transition to one something I was going to ask because obviously, you know, so many years as the you know the, obviously the founder, the CEO of the company, and, and the amounts of growth. I think was it. I want to say I'm getting wrong. Like 3,500 employees on average, right? Is that is that about right? I think at the peak, um, something of that nature. Yes. Is so how do one again? How do you manage all that? But two, I guess really might be helpful for some of the folks listening is maybe there's, I don't know if it's you know, principles or some guide rails and maybe a few of them that in all those years of business that were important, again, to make sure the employees stayed happy, um, make sure they were able to take care of the customers and make sure the business was able to be successful. Are there things that you guys instilled, um, I don't know if it's each and every day or certain values or core principles you guys used as a, yeah. as a company? Sure. You know, it's interesting, both at Joie de Vivre and then I'm sure we'll talk about Airbnb in a few minutes uh, where I was the, I joined them five and a half years ago, the three founders be, because they read my book peak. Um, and so I, the principles that I used at Joie de Vivre are the same ones I used at Airbnb, um, which was um, take Maslow's hierarchy of needs. One of the most iconic psychology theories out there. The idea that people have basic needs and then higher needs apply that to your employees, your customers and your investors. And so the pyramid that would describe the describe the employee hierarchy of needs is money or compensation uh, on the base, recognition in the middle, and then at the peak would be meaning. So money, recognition, meaning. If you organize your company in a way where the culture and the way you operate is addressing that hierarchy of needs such that the compensation package is most important, you can create a great culture, but if people can't pay their rent, it ain't going to work. So you got to get that base um, uh, secured. 
But in many ways, remember that the number one reason people leave their jobs in the United States is not because of money. It's the fourth most likely reason a person leaves their job. The number one reason they leave their job is because of their boss. So that recognition piece in the middle, the, uh, the middle of this pyramid is really important. And it's what starts to differentiate you versus your competitors. Creating a culture of recognition, and I talk about this in my book, Peak, um, really speaks to the idea of how do people feel that they have a career path and that the company is creating the conditions for them to do their best work. One of the things I used to ask my direct reports at Airbnb and at Joie de Vivre was, how can I support you to do the best work of your life here at, for example, Airbnb? And the reason I love that question is because there's, it's two reasons. One is the fact when, it, when an employee feels like the, their boss's job is to help them succeed and flourish, that is a really great feeling. A lot of times people like their, think their boss's job is to actually find their mistakes or figure out how to fire them. But if you if you know your boss is on your side, that helps. But the second part of this is really important because um, how how do you again the question is how do I help you how do I how do I help you to, to uh, uh, do your best work of your life here at Airbnb? When the question is asked to them, they are then required to be um, full of responsibility to actually articulate to me what's not working, like. Do they need some additional learning and development? Do they need to go to a workshop on something? Do they need some new technology tools to help them be better? Do they need a better environment for how we do meetings? By actually asking your employees what they need to do the best work of their life, you are sort of putting in their lap the responsibility of creating the conditions in the workplace, meaning first of all, you better if you're going to hear these things, you better actually be open to to adapting the workplace. But, but what I love is that if someone can't answer that question well, I know that they potentially are someone who stays in the role of a victim or a martyr. And they're constantly – wherever they're going to work, they're going to constantly complain that the boss or the company um, is, is evil and, and is trying to – is creating conditions for them to do bad, bad work. Well, no. Actually, I'm asking you – I ask that question every six months – so that people could actually take agency, take responsibility for helping us to craft the best kind of workplace. Yeah, I, I agree with basically everything you said there. And I even look at my, you know, being at different roles and, and different organizations, and you could see that being in the good ones and the ones not so good. And, and actually, I've noticed, too, if you're at a place long enough, when you see a shift in leadership or see a shift in um, the company, that almost becomes very glaring if it was one way and then goes to the other. So I um, definitely agree with you there. Well, you, you mentioned Airbnb, so let's get let's get into that for a, a minute. So you, you sell your company, a uh, very successful run, and you didn't want to ride off into the sunset yet, or maybe you had plans to do that. What was the one? I'm always curious, why did you go? Why did you go to Airbnb? What was the, the kind of the final uh, I guess, thing that put you over the edge of say, I'm going to go work with these guys. What was the thing there that, that, that well, made you do it? So I'd sold my company and I was in a place where I wasn't sure what I was going to do next. And um, I didn't really know much about Airbnb. It was Brian Chesky, one of the co-founders and CEO, who five and a half years ago reached out to me um, and, and said, how would you like to democratize hospitality? 
And I, I said, what do you mean? He says, we, that's what we're doing. And I said, I, I'm not, I don't even know what Airbnb is at that point, five and a half years ago. I was, you know, as a boutique hotelier, I was one of the first and I was a pioneer and I was an outsider and the Marriott's and the Hilton's couldn't see us coming. And, but then this time I was the establishment and I couldn't see Airbnb coming. But as I spent some time with Brian, I saw he had a real growth mindset, really, you know, constantly wanting to learn. And I saw the company was growing by leaps and bounds, but it was still quite a niche-oriented organization and relatively small. It was tiny relative to what it is today. Um, so I said to Brian, he asked me to be uh, if I would be his mentor. And then um, over time, he asked if I could be the head of global hospitality and strategy. And I said I'd do it part-time. And that was an idiotic thing to consider because in a startup environment – you don't do anything part-time. So about three weeks into it, I said, this is supposed to be 15 hours a week, Brian. This is 15 hours a day. And he just laughed at me and said, well, you're naive, Chip. Um, and so it was fine. I, I just then you know, got into my 60-hour-a-week mentality for four years. And, and then for a year and a half now, I've been just a strategic advisor when I uh, said, okay, you know what? I'm now in my later 50s. I don't necessarily want to work that hard. But I, what I loved was I loved that it was um, a whole new approach and a disruption of uh, an established industry, uh, and that the customer was telling us they liked the product. Now, there's all kinds of problems with Airbnb, and you know that you could point to, and you know there's going to be people who have bad experiences. But that was true of boutique hotel industry. Boutique hotels cr basically created the the welcome mat for Airbnb to come along. And what I mean by that is, prior to boutique hotels, it was all about the chain hotels, and it was all about predictability. And then the boutique hotels create a localized experience, and and boutique hotels are very personalized. One could be perfect for you, and another one could be the exact opposite. Um, whereas Holiday Inn may be satisfying for everybody, just on a on a, a, a minimum level, but no one's in love with Holiday Inn. So in essence, the idea that people could be more adventurous in their travel, more localized, um, create a deeper relationship with a particular hotel is what boutique hotels did. And then Airbnb did it globally and times a hundred. And um, so my role there was to help create uh, better hosts in the world who could actually be the best hospitality providers in the world. And I'm really proud that, you know, four years, three or four years into it, our net promoter score, which is our customer satisfaction metric, which is the primary one the hotel industry uses, was 50% higher than the hotel industry. So we got into a place where part-time you know, non-employee hosts were creating an experience that guests liked enough such that they were substantially happier uh, using the same metric that the hotel industry uses. So um, fascinating journey. What did you, I'm actually curious, you know, coming in fresh there, because obviously, you know, um, those guys have been working on, I think it was since 2008, coming in fresh to Airbnb and seeing some of the stuff, what did you learn from those guys? And this kind of gets into some of the the, the mentor and, and intern, as I think as you put it, right? And playing both roles. But yeah, what, yeah. Did you, what did you learn from them as like young uh, founders of this you know technology company that maybe could apply to maybe other folks that are younger thinking of starting their own business could take away that they should focus on? Anything in particular that come to mind? Yeah, I, I actually write about this in my new book uh, called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. Um, I say that, you know, uh, the role of an elder in the past was to just dispense wisdom. And that was partly because accumulated knowledge of the past meant something. But in the world we live in today, uh, everything's changing so quickly that the um, the older person 
um, if they're not constantly being as much of a student as they are the sage, doesn't have much to offer. So a modern elder is as much a mentor as an intern. So that meant, I, while Brian asked me to be his mentor, the reality is I needed to go there and learn. I didn't know anything about the technology industry. I was 52, joining a tech company for the first time, didn't understand the lingo. There are a lot of cultural trends that were happening, especially around millennials. That was all new to me as well. So um, what I say is that we had a strange implicit trade agreement. I call it the DQ for EQ uh, implicit trade agreement, meaning they gave me digital intelligence, which is DQ, and I gave them emotional intelligence, which is EQ. And so what is emotional intelligence in terms of what a, a young startup leader could learn? Well, just learning um, self-awareness, um, learning how to read other people, uh, learning how to be less temperamental with emotions, uh, learning how to design an alliance with people who are at odds with you, learning how to create a culture uh, that is very human-centric, uh, learning how to lead a meeting that actually gets people inspired. Those are you know, contextual uh, ways that emotional intelligence can show up in uh, a company. How to lead a team. I mean, one of the great things about older people is there's a lot of things that are not great about older people. But one thing that is true is that as you get older, you get a little bit more emotionally intelligent. And in some ways, you can also get better at collaboration, partly because you get you put your ego on the on the sidelines. And I think that one of the things that is challenging sometimes in in young startups, um, I think two, there's a study done at, from Har in Harvard Business Review that showed that. 60% of the startups that failed did so primarily because of a conflict between the founders or a, um, a cultural issue with the small company in its early days. So yes, there's, there's other reasons too. People run out of money, et cetera. But a lot of times it's human issues that get in the way. And, actually, and quite often it's human issues between a, a, an entrepreneur and their investors. So this EQ, the idea of how do you understand people better um, was something that really was helpful, I think, to the three founders of Airbnb. And I'm really proud that 10 years into it, because the company is selling, celebrating its 10th anniversary, uh, and a company that is somewhere worth somewhere like 30 to $40 billion today, still has its three founders working in the business. And I feel like I had a little bit to do with creating the culture that allowed for that to happen. Now, that's tremendous. That's some really good insight there. And kind of last thought on that, though, in that line, because this and this goes back to, to maybe your book and stuff. But I'm just curious, your thought. You talked about older people, you know, quote unquote, right, or older folks that and maybe they had a past career and now they're they feel like they're being aged out. I'm, I'm not sure if that's it or not. But is there anything you think like how do they get in? How do you feel folks should get into um, that in that intern type mentality to get into younger companies, technology companies or otherwise? If they have, feel like they, hey, they passed their peak. I don't know if there's anything that you would, in terms of reaching out and getting in, like how, how do they, because I feel some people might say, oh, you have too much experience in one area. You wouldn't be able to work here because it's like five steps back. But I'm curious yeah. how that transition might work for some folks um, that may be a little older. couple of thoughts on that. First of all, they should re you know, read my book, um, Wisdom at Work. But I think, uh, and we also, I also have an academy called the Modern Elder Academy on a beachfront in Baja where people in midlife come to repurpose themselves for the second half of their life. And people can look at that at modernelderacademy.org. Um, but I think simply it is 
learning, first of all, look at what you're passionate about. What is it that you're interested in? If you're not interested in something, then, you know, trying to figure out how to become interested in it is going to be difficult. I was interested in the hospitality business, but I was also curious about the fact that the technology and hospitality, hospitality as an industry has been slow to adopt new technology. And then here's this little, this little startup, Airbnb, that's a technology company that's actually trying to move in the direction of being hospitality. So um, I, I, that was intriguing to me, even though I hadn't, didn't have any experience in it. So being open to like what you're, what you're intrigued or curious about, then being willing to evolve out of your past history, take what you have from the past that will be helpful, and then leave some of the rest of it behind. I had to leave behind the fact that I was the CEO of a company I started and ran for 24 years to 3,500 employees. Brian, as the CEO of Airbnb, did not need a second CEO there. So I had to right-size my ego. I needed to make sure that my role there was, was not to you know, get my you know, name in the headlines and to instead be sort of the coach on the sidelines, the mentor, the, the modern elder. And so that required a, a real evolution in how I saw myself. So it does require a certain amount of willingness to do that and a, a huge willingness to learn learn and know that you are, if you're an intern, that means you're going to be a beginner's mind learning new things. Uh, and sometimes, you know, that you actually could be the most curious person in the room, uh, which is unusual because a lot of times people think of older folks as being set in their ways and not wanting to learn anymore. But when you actually show up as the most curious person in the room, who also has some wisdom, wisdom to offer as well in certain areas, um, I said, we, I interned publicly, which means I asked a lot of questions in public, and I mentored privately. So when I saw someone who was struggling in a meeting, leading a meeting, I'd, I'd pull them aside after the meeting and ask them if they wanted some advice, um, if I felt like they would be open to it. So that's, you know, that's those are some of my suggestions. Uh, that's, that's great, Jim. Where, where can everyone find uh, not only the book, but also where can they find you online or uh, different ways uh, to, to come across you? Yeah. So uh, my last name is spelled C-O-N-L-E-Y, Chip Conley, and it's chipconley.com. And at that website, you'll see uh, one third of the website's just about me and my books and speaking and things like that, uh, my perspective on life. Uh, a second part is the, a, a deep dive on the book, Wisdom at Work. And then the third part is the Modern Elder Academy. I also write articles on wisdom uh, on, a, on, on all kinds of subjects at LinkedIn. So people can actually look at my LinkedIn profile and you'll see a lot of my articles written there. Um, and I'm on, you know, virtually all of the social media platforms. That's awesome, Chip. And now for everyone listening, I'll post a lot of this stuff in the show notes. So you guys can easily click um, over to Chip's website and, and check out his book and all those and several books, actually, um, to check out. But um, Chip, I actually absolutely uh, enjoyed having you on today. Um, I appreciate taking some uh, some precious minutes out of your day to share some of your stories and um Good luck with the uh, with the book and uh, and things going forward as you're a modern elder uh, in your in your later years. Thank you, thank you so much, Brian. It's great to connect. Thanks again to everyone for listening on this episode. And remember, if you want to check me out online, BrianOndraco.com is my website. B R I A N O N D R A K O, as well as at BrianOndraco on Instagram and Twitter. I certainly appreciate any feedback and comments um, that you have, and look forward to interacting with you guys further. Um, remember, you can also leave a review on iTunes. That would be very appreciative. Um, love to know how I'm doing and, uh, and hear your feedback there or if whatever podcasting platform you guys are utilizing. Hope you guys have a great day, a phenomenal week, 
and look forward to catching you next time. Take care. Just get started.